Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 89th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Sridhar Iyengar, founder and CEO of Elemental Machines. Very few entrepreneurs in the Boston tech scene have had the same level of success as Sridhar. As a co-founder of three different companies in the medical device and wearables industry, the products that he's helped bring to market are incredibly innovative. Take Aga Matrix, a glucose monitoring company that built the world's first medical device that connected directly to the iPhone. Or Misfit, the makers of elegant wearable products that was started along with Sridhar's longtime collaborator, Sonny Vu, and also John Scully. Yes, that John Scully, the one that was the CEO at Apple. Misfit ended up getting acquired by Fossil for a reported $260 million. At Elemental Machines, the company is modernizing the lab and helping to accelerate science with its IoT and data science platform. The company has raised over $11.5 million in funding. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like how to give constructive feedback to your co-founder, Sridhar's early background and a deep dive into Aga Matrix and Misfit, including the story of how John Scully got involved, what led him to start Elemental Machines and all the details on the company, whether he thinks equity should be equal between co-founders, advice for founders on managing cash and raising capital, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. We are getting very close to episode 100 of the VentureFizz podcast, which is truly amazing. So I need your help. Who is the number one person that you would want to have interviewed for episode 100? I'm open to all suggestions. However, I do have two simple requirements. One is the person needs to be based in either Boston or New York. And second, that the person is an entrepreneur or investor. You can reach out to me with any suggestion via email, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Thanks so much in advance. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Sridhar. Sridhar, thanks so much for joining us. Wow, thanks so much for having me. This has been a uh, fantastic opportunity for us to chat, and I'd love to tell you a little bit about what we're doing and uh, to all the, all the bumps and lessons that I've learned along the way. <laughs> no doubt. And I, yeah, I was excited to talk to you because you know, you're uh, a Boston entrepreneur that has accomplished so much, and it's been you, know, you and your, your partner, Sonny Vu, who have been this amazing dynamic team that have started multiple companies that have all had tremendous success in different categories. So, I mean, this conversation could probably go on for hours, but, um, but, but to kick things off, uh, I heard this really interesting concept that you and your co-founder had, and it's called this thing called a cluelessness session, something about giving feedback to each other. So I thought that would be interesting to talk about because as co-founders, it's probably, you know, like how do you give feedback to each other and do it constructively so you're not offending the person? <laughs> Absolutely. That's so um, I got to admit that, that uh, it's a concept uh, that we came up with um, in, our, in our first startup at Agamatrix almost, almost 20 years ago. Um, what, and what it comes down to is um, to being able to give feedback to each other in an open way where you're not threatening somebody and you're not being threatened by the other person. And the concept is, is very simple. <clears throat> uh, first of all, you assume that both parties are kind and you have a good heart and you're not trying to hurt anyone like that. I mean, if you can't assume that you guys, you shouldn't be, business <laughs> you shouldn't partners. be in business together. <laughs> exactly. So, so we, we reestablish that and say, look, the reason I'm giving you feedback is not because I, I think you're a bad person or because I'm just trying to intimidate you. It's because you have performed certain actions and I interpret them in a negative way. And if I do, there's a pretty good chance other people do as well. So I'm going to assume that you're acting this way because you're clueless. And that's the origin of the word because you're right, clueless. You don't even know. You don't even know that you're behaving a certain way. Or you're exactly. 
Yeah, exactly. And there's a couple of ground rules. Um, so let's say you and I are in a cluelessness session and I'm, I'm giving you feedback and I'm sitting there going, listen, um, you said X, Y, Z, or you did so-and-so uh, uh, last week. And, you know, it, and I interpreted it as X, Y, Z in a negative way. And so you are not allowed to defend yourself because this isn't about you defending your action. I'm just giving you feedback. I'm saying, this is what I've observed. This is my interpretation. No, nothing that you say about your own actions has any meaning because I'm just telling you, this is how I interpreted it. And so, so that's all it is. I'm like, look, I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm just saying like, you know, you did this and I thought that was kind of a, <laughs> kind of a unsavory uh, move. And I don't think you're a bad person. I think you were just kind of close and didn't know that's how it came off. And right. as a follow-up is we have an action item that says, well, next time you do something like this, I'm just going to tell you, or I'm going to give you a, a cue so I can, I can, I can remind you because, you know, if, if you're cognizant enough to figure it out yourself, fantastic. But if you're not, you need a nudge and I'm going to be there to nudge you. And it's basically self-improvement, but with a partner, that's what it is. And it's good that the, you know, the, you kind of have that ground rule of, you know, cause this isn't a uh, fight where the person's going to get defensive and you're mm-hmm. getting a shouting match. It's good that the person has that ground rule to take in the feedback mm-hmm. and hopefully, uh, you know, figure things out and adjust. Yeah. And honestly, it's the only way that, that got us through that first uh, couple of years because, um, so just to give a little bit of background, Sonny and I were roommates in college uh, as uh, undergrads. We actually knew about each other in high school. That's a whole other, whole other story. Well, where did uh, you grow up though? Like, so was, oh, right, right, right. Um, so I grew up in Tennessee. Tennessee, okay. Yeah, yeah, in Knoxville, uh, you know, yeah. Tennessee volunteers. Uh, so I grew up right outside the Smoky Mountains. Uh, my dad worked for TVA and that's how we kind of ended up down there. Okay. Uh, and Sonny grew up in Oklahoma City. His dad was a physician and worked for the, uh, the VA. And we had both um, in high school had gone to these uh, summer science camps, you know, that uh, <laughs> now we hadn't met at the same one, but there was a, the Department of Energy had sponsored, um, I think, seven or eight of these around the U.S. So there's um, uh, at uh, like uh, Argonne National Lab, Fermi National Lab, Brookhaven, Oak Ridge down in Tennessee. And I was at Lawrence Livermore out in, uh, in California. And Sonny was, I think, was at the Argonne National Lab outside of um uh, outside of Chicago. Uh, but one of my classmates had also gone off to Argonne. And so it's all the same program, but they were at different sites. And so we came back and my, um, my friend, our, we, we had a mutual friend by that, uh, by that time. And Sonny had heard all about this guy, Shreed, you know, amazing guy. And I'd heard all about this guy, Sonny, amazing guy um, <laughs> in high school um, through our mutual friend. And uh, when we, both went off to college, you know, this was, you know, pre-Facebook days. Uh, we both realized we were both going to University of Illinois and, but pre-Facebook days, how do you, how do you get in touch with each other? You, you, you kind of can't. <laughs> right, right. And so at a pure coincidence, um, Sonny sat down across from me uh, at dinner because he knew my roommate um, from one of the social clubs on campus. So we started chatting. I'm like, hi, I'm Shreed. Hi, I'm Sonny. Not, nothing really clicked. And then after all, we realized we both knew this kid from Tennessee in common. Uh, like, wait a minute, <laughs> you're Sonny. It's like, wait a minute, you're that Shreed. So we're like, all right, we should be friends. So we were like destiny here. It was, it was. Um, so we became roommates our sophomore year. Um, and then fast forward, he went off to MIT. I went off to the UK to do my PhD. And when we uh, reconnected and worked on Agamatrix, uh, we said, look, you know, we don't have an income, so let's just be roommates again because we, we did it once. I mean, <laughs> how hard could it be <laughs> to do it again? Um, so we did. We were living right outside of um, 
right next to Porter Square. Um, and but when you live and work in the same within the same four walls with the same person for a year, you need these types of sessions where otherwise you just kill you 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 kill each other. Yeah, if you're not giving each other feedback, something's going to irk you and it's going to get really under your skin to the point where you're going to start hating the person. <laughs> so if you're open and honest about the things that are bothering you or something, then obviously, you know, you, usually you figure out, oh, I didn't know that and I'll fix it. Yep. No, it totally, it greatly works with business partners. Um, I would caution anyone uh, to try this with the utmost caution with their spouses. <laughs> Work with business partners. That's all Cluelessness sessions, yes. <laughs> yeah. Probably not a good idea. <laughs> Might need to phrase it differently, but uh, right. it's a very effective way for a professional uh, pair to, to, to give feedback. Very cool. Um, oh, so, so, you know, obviously you guys went off and, you know, pursued, uh, you know, higher degrees of, of education. Um, no, so, but you guys were part of Fire Spout, right? Was that the first company that like, what's, what's talk about that company sure. that kind of started things off here. Absolutely. Um, so just to put things in perspective, um, Sonny and I were both undergraduates at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign in the early to mid nineties. And if that gives you, you know, to give you some historical uh, perspective, um, I believe when we were both either freshmen or sophomores, uh, Mark Andreessen was a senior. I, that you just kind of triggered yeah. that memory in yeah. my head. I'm like, okay, wait, this is the same time period. Yeah, yeah. So a bunch of our friends were working on Mosaic, the Mosaic browser, and they went off to Netscape and all that. Um, and then a year or two below us were the two founders of PayPal, uh, Max Levchin and Luke Nosek. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, we didn't know each other at the time, but when we met later on, uh, because Founders Fund and Max uh, were investors in Misfit and also in, in, uh, in Elemental, um, we realized we actually knew a bunch of friends in common. Um, so that was, uh, that was, that was kind of cool. But to give you perspective, um, you know, we kind of grew up in that era where, where a lot, we saw a lot of our friends go off to Silicon Valley and uh, just, you know, do really well for themselves and work on some amazing things. Now, um, we both had immigrant parents, and what that means, and I'll, I'll say this a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, what that means is we, we had a lot of um, cultural and, and parental pressure to continue with advanced degrees and advanced studies. And, you know, go, go work at, at IBM, go work at Motorola, go work at a nice, big, safe company, which, you know, from their perspective, is the right thing to do. But, you know, when you were there at that time, that was probably the worst advice you could have gotten. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, so, so truth be told, Sonny went off to MIT. Um, I went off to Cambridge, um, ended up getting a, a scholarship to study there. So figured, Hey, good chance to go study, um, uh, see a different part of the world, uh, and all that. And I had worked on, no, I was an electrical engineer undergrad, <clears throat> but I wanted to, uh, work on, uh, biological and chemical, uh, systems. I wanted to learn more about biology and chemistry and origin of life and all that. And, and so I, got to work on a project for biological and chemical sensors. And I'll get to that in just a minute. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of that, um, I was ready to come back to the U.S. And I was actually ready to leave all my lab stuff behind and just, you know, come back and write code. Because, you know, when it's three in the morning and your beaker, if the reaction in your beaker isn't done yet, you can't go home. Right. <laughs> and I was sick of that. I'm like, I'm, I'm doing software. So, I emailed Sonny my resume and I said, hey, you've had a lot of friends. Here's my resume. Can you help me get a job? Um, and Sonny, within like 10 minutes, emails me back and said, hey, good to hear from you. I started a company. Work here. 
<laughs> like, okay, uh, tell me a little bit more about it. But long story short, that was Firespout. So I was not a founder of it, but I was one of the first 10 uh, people to join Sonny's team. And I said, listen, um, A, I'd love to come back to the US and, and, and to Boston. Uh, love to help you uh, growing Firespout. And I'd love to learn about startups because, you know, I kind of, kind of missed it, you know, being in grad school in the late 90s. Um, so I joined and we had a gentleman's agreement, which is very simple, which was, uh, uh, Sonny, if you have raised enough money to pay me for a year, then you've got me dedicated to whatever you want me to work on for one year. So gentleman's agreement. Um, and yeah, that's kind of what we did. I said, look, at the end of that year, uh, if things are going well and I'm having fun, then I'll continue. But if I'm not, then I'll probably step away. But I'll give you plenty of notice, but you got me for a year. I'll help you. And so that's how we got started. And then about six months into it, I, I recovered from my PhDs, uh, from, from, from the PTSD from my PhD. <laughs> uh, and I started working on, on, the, on, on like what I would be doing uh, had I extended my, my PhD thesis work. I kind of worked on it nights and weekends. A lot of it was simulation, so I could, I could, I could bring that up. And after my year was up, I decided to uh, work on it full time. And that was basically the origin of Agamatrix. And then about a month later, Sonny uh, kind of decided to step away from his own startup due to other um, kind of you know, disagreements with the other founders and all that. He was going to go back to MIT uh, to finish his uh, PhD. And I kind of looked at him and said, okay, I think you owe me a year of your life. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we, we chatted about it. And uh, we thought it'd be a really good idea to work together in healthcare, um, which was, you know, because the first company, Firespout, was all about uh, software, and our customers were all the, the, the first generation dot coms. And when that whole roller coaster went up and down, you know, Firespout kind of got caught up in the midst of that. And so going into healthcare meant that we were a lot more resilient to those ups and downs. And so that's kind of how we officially teamed up for Agamatrix. And how'd you end up in the Boston area? Oh, I came just to join uh, to join Sonny's company, Firespout. Oh, Firespout was a Boston company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was in Cambridge in Central Square. Then I think we moved it up to Belmont. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Now with uh, Agamatrix, like what was the kind of the early versions of what you were building? And obviously now you know you're building not only uh, you know you're you're building hardware and software and medical device, right? So it's uh, you know comp- complexities as opposed to software mm-hmm. with the FDA yep. involved. Yeah, so, um, so to really talk about what we did at Agamatrix, um, it really started in my, in my PhD work. So my PhD was all about how do you improve the accuracy and performance and basically signal to noise ratio of glucose sensors. And the reason uh, in academia why people work on glucose is because it's a very well characterized system. It's a, it's always the, it is the killer app in the world of biological sensors. It's as, <laughs> it's one molecule glucose that generates tens of billions of revenue a year. It, it is the killer app. And so if you're going to work on something in academia, then do it on glucose because there's a lot huge body of knowledge you can work off of. And more importantly, the materials, the enzymes and the materials are actually um, fairly affordable for those on a, on a academic budget. So, my task was look at this glucose sensor, make it more accurate using nothing but better math. So signal processing, data science and analytics and clean up the signal. And so, so we did that. Um, <clears throat> and then when, when it came time to start Agamatrix, I'm thinking, wow, there's a lot more we could be doing with this if I took it forward. And so that was sort of the idea, like what would I be doing next? And uh, yeah, our, our very simple idea was 
we can make other people's glucose strips, the, the, the chemistry, we can make their sensors more accurate just through better signal processing on the back end. Mm. So the initial idea was we would go to Roche, J&J, Abbott, and Bayer, all these big players, and say, listen, um, you guys spend you know, 100 million bucks on R&D and building factories to manufacture these glucose sensors. And you know, these guys would be manufacturing billions a year. Um, and after, a, after about a decade or so, they're not as competitive because somebody else comes out with something new. And so what they'd have to do is to invest in more R&D. You know, how do you make these things more competitive? It's better materials, better chemistry, better manufacturing. So it's a lot of investment. Our pitch to them was, listen, don't change anything in your manufacturing line or your assets. Just update your firmware on the electronics and improve the performance just through better signal processing. So very similar to what Dolby Noise Reduction did for the audio industry. We just said, look, just click this button and your signal gets better. And you now have another 10 years of, um, of competitive product without any capital investment into your factory. And that was very, that was a very attractive um, uh, you know, uh, proposition. But the challenge was we were five guys in a basement and nobody really took us seriously and all these big players uh, wanted exclusive rights and like, we can't do that. So we said, listen, if we can take any one of those major branded uh, uh, glucose, we just went to CVS, we just bought them and stuck them into our little black box. If we can make any of those better, then why don't we just make an end-to-end product? We don't have to make a branded player's glucose strip better. We can just find a contract manufacturer and then make an end-to-end product. So we literally got onto Google and we did a uh, search for, you know, uh, glucose uh, test strip contract manufacturer, low cost comma Asia. <laughs> and um, we got a bunch of samples. We tried them out. We found one that we really liked and uh, they were located in, in, in Korea. And so we built an entire product and took it to market with the single reason that we just wanted to be taken seriously we're like hey look at us we have a real product it works now will you please talk to us and not uh, and not try to take advantage of us and that's how it got started now obviously the market evolved right when all of a sudden this uh, amazing device called the iphone was launched and that's kind of where agamatrix uh really i think that's when i first heard of your company was yep. uh you know it was the first fda approved smartphone medical device right Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So what happened was, um, you know, prior to that, we were making very traditional glucometers, putting them in cardboard boxes, sticking them on shelves at, uh, in, the, in the pharmacies. Um, but the biggest problem that we had was, um, well, you know, first of all, in the world of diabetes, you have folks who have type 1 diabetes and they're insulin dependent. So once they, they check their blood sugar based on that reading, they will dose themselves with insulin up to the appropriate level. So that's sort of one category of... Um, of, uh, of folks who have diabetes. The other uh, are the folks who have type 2 diabetes, and that's more induced from lifestyle. So there's no, they're not, they're not insulin dependent, but 95% of the folks who have diabetes have type 2 and are not insulin dependent. So what it means is <clears throat> most of the people out there, when they get their reading, they don't know what to do. There's no action they can take. Mm. There's no okay. immediate action they can take other than you know generally eat better, exercise, and lose weight. Okay, fine. Well, if they were doing all that, they wouldn't have type two diabetes, you know, and, 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 you know, for at least many of them wouldn't. And I certainly know certain folks who have lost uh, their weight and their diabetes symptoms have disappeared. Right. So it is possible to do, but for this population, um, the biggest feedback we got was, okay, so I tested my blood sugar. Like, what do I do with it? I, you know, so what? 
And so when the iPhone came out, we realized, oh my God, we can solve one of the biggest problems. We can solve the so what problem because now you can see trends. Now you can tag that. Now, you know, we, we had this beautiful vision that, that our system could eventually learn over time what, you know, because we wanted to pull in data from nutrition and, and exercise and all that. We wanted to train our internal AI uh, to um, basically be a doctor in your pocket. And that, that was our vision. We had no idea how we were going to do it, but that's, that's where we saw the world going. And we said the only way to do this is um, take our iPhone, uh, take our glucometer, sorry, and plug it into the iPhone because nobody will, will manually enter the numbers in. That's just too much friction. It's not going to happen. So we made this little thing, stuck it into the bottom, and it was really to seamlessly integrate somebody's day-to-day um, uh, measurements with the long-term uh, care ideas of trend analysis, statistics, share, sharing the data automatically um, with, with your caregiver. And these are all things that, that we envisioned um, when we first got started. So, nope. which, which is like revolutionary. I mean, just to think of using these, a smartphone as a medical device is so forth. I don't know if there was other people thinking that, but then you actually had to, it's one thing to have the vision. It's another thing to execute and actually work with Apple to make sure that this is going to get released in their app store, right? Like they, I'm sure that wasn't an easy process. Nope, no, uh, it wasn't. So I, I kind of joke and say, you know, um, we, we thought working with the FDA was hard, uh, but oh my goodness, working with Apple was far more difficult. Um, yeah. And, and, and it, it, it came down to one very specific reason, which is um, if the FDA rejects your application or, or says no, they have to tell you why. Okay, mm-hmm. Apple, you don't have to <laughs> nope. tell you anything. <laughs> Denied. <laughs> exactly. They won't tell you That's why. It. They won't tell you what, what they're concerned about because they don't want to give up, you know, they want to, uh, you know, reveal any, anything that's proprietary or trade secret or potentially uh, could be a weakness, uh, perceived as a weakness. So they, they, they couldn't tell us anything. So um, we finally understood that one of the biggest uh, concerns they had was they didn't want, um, they didn't want the iPhone itself to become considered a medical device by the FDA. Right. And so uh, that would be us, problematic. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, yeah. Because every iOS update, mm-hmm. uh, every app, everything, yeah. So uh, we overcame that by the way that we designed our product, and and this is what we did. And we got a lot of pushback from other folks in the industry saying, "What? Why didn't you? Why did you do X, Y, Z?" Uh, and it was um, so. Our device is a standalone glucometer. You don't have to have it connected, plugged into the iPhone. It has a standalone power supply, has a standalone user interface display. It works as a standalone glucometer. When you plug it in, it transfers the data. So no computation actually happens on the iPhone. Mm-hmm. And that way, Apple and the FDA were both um, uh, you know, appeased that no medical processing, uh, so no processing of medical data happens on the iPhone. And that, that was key to, um, uh, key to Apple being comfortable. Now, obviously, once you got everything approved, you, you know, did eventually partner up with a um, company to help you get this to market, um, mm-hmm. which was what company? So that was uh, Sanofi. Sanofi, yeah. right. So that's kind of like, obviously, wow, huge outcome, big win for your company. Yep. Um, but the, you go off to start now a consumer electronics company <laughs> called, called Misfit Wearables. But the reason why I'm kind of like tangling this all together is there's an interesting bridge of this gentleman who's yep. well known in our industry, John Scully, 
who yep. was the former CEO of Apple, somehow intertwangled, intertangled yep. into this whole segue of yep. two different companies. So yep. how, how did you meet John Scully <laughs> and how does that relate to Agamatrix and then Misfit? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so at the time, Agamatrix, we didn't really have our own brand. You know, we were, uh, we were an OEM white label uh, uh, company. So we, we, you know, put other people's brands on it and they take it to market. So we, we made this um, iPhone product and the code name for it internally was called the nugget. We couldn't come up with anything better than it was a little nugget you stick on the bottom of the iPhone. So we had this uh, nugget glucometer and we tried to find a go-to-market partner. Um, through one of our uh, investors, we were introduced to a company that was working in the sleep apnea space. And um, there's a huge overlap between people who have type 2 diabetes and people who have sleep apnea. They're, they're, um, those two conditions are comorbid with each other. And so um, so we're talking to their CEO, and, and um, they were very interested in taking our product. And we white label it, put their brand on it. They take it to their channel. So they provided products and services to people who have sleep apnea. So as we're doing some homework on this company, we kind of, you know, we came to the website and we, 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 we realized, we saw that uh, uh, John Scully was the chairman of the board. And we're like, oh my God, that is the John Scully. <laughs> um, and so, you know, both Sonny and I, we're, we're all like Apple fanboys. So, you know, <laughs> right. we're like, wow, we'd love to meet John. So we asked our CEO, hey, could, could, you, could you invite John to the meeting? Um, you know, it'd be really amazing to, to meet him. And, you know, truth be told, Sonny and I just wanted a photo of, with John for Facebook, <laughs> so, <laughs> which, which we got, you know, and John was gracious enough to, uh, to, to grant us that. Um, but in that process, we actually got to know John and we got to really know him as a person and, he, you know, he, the ideas that he had, but how, you know, it's, you know what, what, what he wanted to do uh, with this and sleep apnea was just the tip of the iceberg. And, mm. It was great. So we actually came relatively close to doing a deal uh, with with uh, with that company with John, but you know at the same time, and it was just going to be a channel deal just for that channel. Um, but at the eleventh hour, uh, Sanofi came in and um, they made us an offer we couldn't refuse that involved exclusive rights to that product uh, in all fields of use. And so you know when you're dealing, you know Sanofi is just such an amazing partner. Uh, they're the number one or number two largest insulin manufacturer in the world, and so having a, a glucometer in their portfolio was just was, was was a great win for us. So long story short, we ended up making the deal with Sanofi, uh, which was great. Um, and then Sunny and I, our, we our eyes were open to this world of digital health, and and um, you know this was 2010, so super early days of digital health, and you know we got to know the guys at Runkeeper, Fitbit, My Fitness Pal, um, Map My Fitness, and all these guys, and we were like, yeah, this is fantastic. Let's share information, let's share data, etc. Um, you know, we wanted we wanted to take our data and and have all Fitbit users share it or or, or use it, you know, and go back and forth. And same with Runkeeper, same with all the nutrition apps and all that. But the FDA had had different plans at that point. They they uh, they were uh, the, the the guidelines were not very clear on what happens if our medical data gets transmitted to let's say the Fitbit or Runkeeper app, mm. and their position was if they take your class two medical device, they become an accessory and and we have oversight over them. So so mm. that clearly wasn't going to go anywhere. Right. And so Sunny and I wanted to really expand this into this huge digital health offering. Um, but at the same time, you know, Agamatrix was very much a diabetes company, and it was heading in that direction and, and expanding into digital health. You know, we were kind of trying to pull the company in two directions. And that's, where, that's when John stepped in, and he gave us some, you know, we got to know him socially. And, and um, 
John kind of gave us some very sage advice. And he said, listen, guys, don't try to pull a company in two directions because it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. He's like, <laughs> trust me, if anyone knows this, I do. <laughs> he has experience with that. He does. And, and it, it, was really, um, it, was, it was really inspiring and very uh, educational to, to hear his perspective um, on that. And what he said was, listen, you guys started the company, been there for 10 years, and one of our investors had stepped into the CEO role. And so we had a professional CEO running it. And, and his, um, his advice was, listen, you need to reinvent yourself every five years. Ten's um, really pushing it. And you built a great company. You have a professional CEO running it. There's a great deal with Sanofi. You know, let Agimatrix be the best diabetes companies on the planet and let them do that portion of the digital health world that makes sense for them. Don't try to turn that into a digital health platform because it's not going to work. And we realized he was right. And then he very quickly said, but if you really want to do something in digital health, um, kind of said, I know, I like you kids. <laughs> and, uh, and how about the three of us do something together? And that's kind of how Misfit started. So, so John Scully was part of the founding team. Yes, yes. He was kind of the catalyst. Um, he catalyzed it because he's the one who made us start thinking about, oh, geez, if there's a whole world of digital health, you know, you're right. It should be a new company um, because it's the, the mission's going to be different. It's, it's consumer oriented as opposed to FDA. Um, and so in 2011, you know, myself, John, and Sonny put a little bit of capital together and we got, uh, you know, we established Misfit. So at, at this point, you know, there were companies that are very well known, uh, you know, Fitbit. Uh, Nike had their uh, fuel band at the time. Uh-huh. Jawbone existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. And they had their own version of, you know, a wearable yep. device. Mm-hmm. So what, you know, what made you think, okay, we can do this better or mm-hmm. different and, and gain market share? Yeah. So um, when we first started Misfit, um, we originally called it Misfit Wearables. Um, we then just dropped the wearables bin. We just called it Misfit. But when we started Misfit Wearables, um, we didn't have, you know, we wanted to do a bunch of different things. We had an original idea that, hey, we'll do biometrics. We'll measure things on people's bodies and their health and wellness. And we were prototyping a number of different things and we were trying to do feasibility in a number of different, uh, different things. And we just kept seeing Fitbits, Jawbones, and fuel bands like flying off the shelves. And, you know, we had gotten to know the Fitbit guys back in the Agamatrix days. And so we kind of realized that, you know what, um, a rising tide lifts all boats. So let's put everything else on hold. Let's go build, let's just jump onto this uh, activity tracking um, a trend. I mean, there, there's clearly something there. And what was funny was when we told our board and some of our investors, mm-hmm. their immediate reaction was, uh, okay, that's a hugely crowded space. You got Nike right. you got to compete with, you got Jawbone and you got Fitbit. Like, are you guys crazy? Like, why are you going to such a crowded space? Which was really ironic because from where Sonny and I were sitting, we thought the fitness and activity tracking market was kind of greenfield. We, we kind of figured there was no competition. And the reason for that, it's all a matter of perspective. Um, we came out of diabetes, <clears throat> where glucose meters have been around for decades. There's, there's probably a hundred different products on the market that's been on the shelves, like I said, for, for three or four decades. It's been you know, or two or three decades. Um, and you had Johnson & Johnson, you had Bayer, you had Abbott, you had Roche, <laughs> you had multi-hundred billion dollar companies in the space. Uh, and we got sued a bunch of times as well. So we went through all of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having gone through all of that, we look at this space and we're like, um, okay, first of all, 
Nike doesn't count because they make shoes and shirts. <laughs> the right. fuel ban, like we kind of predicted it wasn't going to last. Um, and it didn't. That's not, yeah, it didn't. And it's not in their DNA to do that. They're not an electronics manufacturer. So that one didn't last. So like Nike doesn't count because um, it's just like really a marketing thing. Um, and Jawbone, well, they have a history of making audio products. So uh, is, a, is this fitness thing really going to be real or is it, you know, is it in their company DNA? We kind of, we kind of thought it probably wasn't. Um, mm-hmm. And really Fitbit was the only one. And they were a private company, I think at the time worth a couple of hundred million bucks. So it's basically nobody there. Wow. Given that no. perspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, a, that's great, great feedback. Um, now, what I think Misfit, how you stood out was the design of your product. It was not, you know, a little like digital reading. It was very much a very uh, elegant, almost Apple-esque type of design. Yeah. So who, who came up with that concept? So it's funny, the, the, the origins of that actually, uh, the, the seeds of that were planted back at Agamatrix. Um, when we were dealing with uh, folks who had diabetes, you know, unless you took insulin and you needed that number exactly, most people didn't know what to do with the number. If you if you're not insulin dependent, they just wanted, you know, ideally they wanted a thumbs up, thumbs down, or thumbs sideways. That, that's all they like. Am I good? Am I bad? Or am I status quo? That's all they wanted. Now, of course, you can never make a glucometer with with <laughs> with the user interface where it's a thumbs up or thumbs down. Like the right. FDA will never approve that. But what the patients wanted was just indication: Am I good or not? That's it. And we always had that in the back of our mind is the simplicity of that. So when it came to designing our own fitness tracker, we took a radical approach and we said, let's get rid of the number because people don't care about, they just want to know, am I good or not? Mm-hmm. So that, that was one part of it. But before I dive into that, I have to tell you how we did our market research. Um, and uh, I give a talk uh, at MIT um, a, regu- a couple of times a year about de-risking hardware. And one of the main things that you got to realize is once you get on the path of making a particular piece of hardware, it's really expensive to change. So you better get it right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Software, you can, you can update, but hardware, it's really hard. So before we embarked on a design, what we had to figure out was um, what do people want and how do we, you know, what's our unique sell? What's, what's our USP? What's our unique angle here? And so we had to do market research. Now, to do market research, you can always do surveys. You can ask people. You can use the products yourself, but um, surveys are not very good or even um, uh, user studies uh, aren't, aren't very good because you can, they can be manipulated you know, intentionally or, or unintentionally. Um, the best place to get really good feedback is to look at the, uh, look at the uh, two and three star reviews on, on Amazon. Mm. Okay. Um, so we had one of our interns uh, spend about two weeks and read all the negative um, reviews on Amazon for Fuel Band, Jawbone, and, uh, uh, and, and all the Fitbits. And so look, just tell us what the, what the top three complaints are. Just categorize them. And, you know, the funny thing, like, don't read one-star reviews because those are angry people whose boxes got crushed in delivery. But, you know, mm-hmm. if you're thoughtful enough to give it a two or a three-star, we want to hear from you. So we did that. And the number one complaint that people had that eclipsed everything else combined was actually battery life and recharge. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, you had to recharge Fitbit every two days. So number one, battery life. Number two, it had to be waterproof. People complained that their Fitbits got water, and it wasn't because of showers, and it wasn't because of swimming. 
it was because of washing machines. People would leave their Fitbits in their pockets and throw it into the washing machine. Oh, okay. Yes. So number two, it had to be waterproof and, wow. and survive a washing machine. Um, and number three is where you come to the design piece. Um, and this, is, this is primarily from, um, from the female demographic where uh, they didn't want something stuck on their wrist all the time because mm-hmm. they'd never wear it with a beautiful dress. They're like, look, if I go out and I wear a dress, I'm not going to wear this. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to advertise to their friends that they were trying to lose weight. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, and so there were a couple of psychological things in there. So we said, listen, um, this product has to be has to really be so elegant and beautiful that people would wear it even if it doesn't work and nobody knows it's a fitness tracker. So that's where the design piece came in. We had six months of battery life and it was 30 meters or 50 meters waterproof or water resistant. So, so obviously you built a product and uh, how do you go to market? How do you bring a consumer electronic device yeah. to market uh, in, in the consumer's hands? Yeah. So we had a little bit of a, of a leg up because um, at Agamatrix, the iPhone glucometer was actually distributed in the Apple stores. So, we already we knew the Apple retail folks, mm. and so um, and and actually it was it was it was all Sunny Sunny took care of this half of it, so he had primed the Apple retail folks that hey look we're do, we're going to do something else and you guys are going to get it first, and so we had primed them they were super excited so Apple was always our our reference account, mm-hmm. and so then with that ready once we had the product we'd have the marketing collateral and then we set up meetings with best buy and target and so on and so forth and basically telling them that hey this is coming apple's getting it do you want it as well mm-hmm. and so that got the retail going and, uh, and in parallel to this um sunny was on the road all the time promoting and, and giving talks and conferences and you name it he was out there promoting that's i mean the wonderful thing about sunny is he's an amazing amazing um uh, you know, uh, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to belittle him by saying salesman because he's so much more than that. But he can, he can, he can get the excitement uh, of a concept into people's heads in a way that I've never seen anyone else do. He's such a great storyteller. He can, he, you know, I don't want to say sell ice to an Eskimo, but but he's got that ability to inspire people and and, and have them on edge. That was part of it. The other part was Indiegogo. Um, so we actually tried. To go to Kickstarter, but they rejected us um, because they said they don't do hard. No, they're not going to support hardware because they've had bad experiences with hardware startups. And we tried to explain to them that look, we've done fifteen hardware <laughs> FDA. We kind of know what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, they didn't want to talk to us, so fine. We went to Indiegogo, and and Slava was has become a really good friend. Slava opened up his uh, arms and said, "Come on in, whatever you want, we'll help." And mm-hmm. really, because Indiegogo and Slava's dedication, that we were able to get the word out. And we raised, I think, about um, eight hundred thousand or so. In the uh, our goal was a hundred thousand, and we did uh, about eight hundred or so. That gave us the visibility. That gave us the confidence. Uh, this was again two thousand eleven, I think, maybe eleven or twelve. So, um, yeah, we got the word out through social media, through that, and through retail. Amazing, and obviously, it led to a very successful outcome. Fossil Group, mm-hmm. the you know, makers of great watches, yep. acquired the company for two hundred sixty million. Yep. No, we, uh, it was actually a lot, a lot of it was good timing as well. Uh, you know, uh, you know, about six months after we did the deal, you know, the wearables market started to, uh, started to start falling, but, um, you know, fossil is doing very well with the product. Um, it's, it's embedded in all of their hybrid smartwatches now. So I, yeah, I think they're happy. Well, let's talk about what you're up to now. So elemental yeah. machines, let's talk about Absolutely. your current company. 
Yeah. So um, elemental machines, uh, you know, for folks who've known me only from the, from the misfit days, they look at what I'm doing now and they said, okay, we don't really get it. How'd you, you know, so revolutionizing the lab (laughs) yes they're like how how did how did that happen like i remind them i have a phd in biochemistry like you know (laughs) this is what you think about this is what i think about so um at elemental machines we look at this and say we want to make it easy to optimize and, and basically debug physical processes with the same speed and accuracy that we can digital ones so if you think of a digital process as software. No, software is a virtual digital process. Step one, do this. Step two, step three. When something goes wrong, you have tools like debuggers. You, you can go through the, your software line by line and you find out exactly where that could have broken. Well, when you look at the physical world, the physical process like manufacturing, like even transportation, supply chain, following protocols in R&D, all these are physical processes. And when something goes wrong, how do you figure out what went wrong. It's really time consuming and really, uh, it's, it's, it's expensive. And sometimes you never get to the bottom of it. You know, in, in, in the world that I live in now, it's called root cause analysis. How do you find the root cause? Well, in a physical process, it's hard. Now, the reason why this is such an interesting thing is this is exactly what we had to do at my first company, Agamatrix. Um, um, we were, doing, were manufacturing our glucose uh, sensors, our strips, out in the Far East uh, with a contract manufacturer. And you know, they were very good, but when something went wrong, it was really hard to figure out from halfway around the world. Because, um, you know, it could be things like, and we would see, we'd see beautiful sinusoidal trends in our, in our, in our, uh, in our production data. And it, co- and it corresponded to each of the four seasons, you know? So if you think about it, you're making a product, a glucose sensor that has chemicals in it. It has an enzyme, you know, it has materials, you know, screen printed uh, ink electrodes and all that. Um, when raw materials get delivered to the factory and it's sitting outside in the blazing sun for an hour, these things are going to degrade versus sitting in, in sub-zero winter in the factory. You know, these things are going to, the physical uh, attributes are going to change based on the environment, based on storage, based on usage conditions. Um, and so to overcome that, we started collecting data from the factory, like you know, sensors everywhere, even things like knowing how often a machine is being used so you can schedule maintenance based on usage as opposed to calendar days. So this is stuff we did way back in the day before AWS and before anything, but we relied on sensor data and, 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 and we built our own dashboards. We built our own predictions. We were able to predict manufacturing quality a couple of months in advance before it became an issue. So today they call it predictive analytics, but in a decade and a half ago, we just called it good engineering. <laughs> um, but before all of the modern tech stack, it was really hard to do just from, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a pain in the rear end. So, but we did it and we, our yields went up and that extra uh, yield savings is what allowed us to bid very aggressively for the contracts that we got. So that really a large part of our success was due to the manufacturing technology that we did behind the scenes. And from, from an engineering perspective, that was fantastic. Yeah, I had such an intellectually stimulating time doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so then fast forward to, um, to Misfit. And at, at one point, I turned around to Sonny and I said, you know, we got, I don't know, like almost a million people using our fitness trackers around the world. And I was kind of joking with him. And I said, you know, we've actually created a globally distributed sensor network, <laughs> <laughs> kind of by accident. And Sonny's like, yeah, uh, I, I guess we did. I'm like, 
Yeah, and we're using it to count steps. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, it pays the bills. I'm, I'm thrilled about it. But there's so much more we could be doing. And I was lamenting the fact that it was easier for me to get data from a million sensors around the world with Misfit's modern tech stack as compared to trying to get data from a couple dozen sensors in one factory in, you know, just a few years earlier. Mm-hmm. That's when the idea hit that, hmm, wait a minute, maybe I can repurpose this entire tech stack. And instead of an accelerometer um, as a sensor, maybe I can... Maybe I can, you know, swap out a humidity sensor, temperature. No, I could be sensor agnostic and just repurpose the entire uh, software stack. And and the idea was, hey, let's sell this to, uh, you know, businesses. Let's, let's create a B two B business unit. So that's sort of when the idea started formulating. And then you know, Fossil started sniffing around. So I kind of stepped out and I said, you know what, I I'm not, you know, I really don't want to be making watches for the rest of my life. Um, uh, but I really want to do this. I think there's an opportunity where we can take the modern tech stack and turn it into, make it really easy to uh, put sensors everywhere, build dashboards, and really build a debugger for the physical world. And we're going to go after the life sciences folks because it's a world I know. Uh, it's a, you know, low-hanging fruit. Um, but imagine what you could do if everything, if every physical object was talking to you. But getting those objects to talk to you, not just the machines, but the context, you know, are your chemicals being stored correctly? Are your medicines being stored correctly? So many times, um, you know, folks store insulin uh, in, incorrectly. And so let's put a sensor on everything, make it super easy to get this information. And then when something goes wrong, we have a full digital historical journal of what process uh, has occurred. And we can really do root cause analysis really quickly. And so that was sort of the idea. And where's the business today in terms of your your yeah. your product or platform? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So um, we've uh, got about a hundred customers. Um, we've been commercial for a little over two years. Uh, we just uh, did this uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful. Um, we have a partnership with a company called Perkin Albert that's headquartered out in uh, in Waltham, mm-hmm. um, and they're one of the leaders uh, in in the in the, uh, in the scientific instrumentation space. Um, so yeah, we're, we're building products and we're selling them and we're growing the business and we're, uh, you know, we're looking to add more to our staff this year. <laughs> so, um, you know, anyone out there, we're looking for full stack or looking for commercial, we're looking for data scientists, you know, come to our website. <laughs> well, there's so many different like nuances that can affect a scientific study, right? Like, I mean, so like, um, the feedback you must be getting from the, the scientists themselves must be like, this is game changing. Like, thank you. Like, like, yeah. Yeah, I'll give you an example. We had one customer that was um, using uh, that was actually uh, conducting, I won't say clinical trials. They were they were uh, getting data, um, uh, a human study. I, I don't think it was. I don't think they were actually submitting this to the FDA. But it was, it was an internal um, human study, and they had a medical device, and they were getting all sorts of noise on that device, and they couldn't figure out where it was coming from. But then they realized because uh, they they looked at. The, the information we were collecting in the, in, the, in the room where the study was happening, and it was a high correlation between the humidity uh, over time and the noise in the sensor, uh, in, in the, uh, the, the noise in the device that, the, that they were recording. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they, they admitted to us, like, you know, if it was up to our own, we would have never suspected its humidity, but, um, but because we were measuring that, we could very clearly see that those spikes corresponded to the spikes in our, in our noise. So, something in the material that they were using for their device was fluctuating with the humidity or something like that. But um, yeah, that's, and this is exactly what, what we found is that, you know, oftentimes when you're looking at, at something, you have blinders on to everything else that's, that's happening. And um, the, the simple analogy is 
you can look at, you can write software and your software can be absolutely perfect, but the problem might be in the operating system, might be in the context in which that software is being run. Your OS may not have a certain patch or you may be running some other process in the background that's interfering with your, your piece of software. Just like that, a physical process might be affected by something else in the environment or in the context in which you're executing it. And that's, that's the clarity we want to bring to people. And what's the future of the lab? Like, like how is that? Like, I'm assuming you are part of that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so uh, there's, a, there's been a couple of studies out there saying that there's, prob- there's about $30 billion a year that's wasted in uh, preclinical R&D in the biomedical space because you, you do some preclinical work, you get some results, and guess what? You can't reproduce it. Mm-hmm. And so reproducibility is a huge issue. And in the early stage R&D, it's called reproducibility. But if you take that same concept and you move it downstream to manufacturing, if you can't reproduce something, you've got to throw it away. It's, it's yield. It's loss. It's loss of product. So the same concept, which is I run through a set of, uh, run through a protocol or a procedure, and if I do the same thing, I should get the same result every time. So what people have realized is um, we need to actually start looking at um, how do we tackle informatics and how do we tackle the reproducibility problem in early stage R&D. Because if you can't solve it there, you're not going to solve it in production. And mm-hmm. so um, there's a lo- huge amount of, uh, of, of resources going into um, digi- you know, digitizing uh, the, the biopharma sector. And I'll tell you who's leading the charge. Um, all the companies that are coming out in the synthetic biology field, those are the guys that are leading the charge. And the reason for that is most of synthetic biology, most of the entire field is run by data scientists who happen to do biology, as opposed to traditional biotech and pharma who are biologists who happen to use Microsoft Excel and who happen to do data science. It's, it's just, it's a, a different frame of mind. Got it. And so cool. if you're a data scientist doing biology, you want as much data as you want, and that's where we, that's where we fit in. Got it. So I was listening to one of the, you know, it was another interview where you had a very contrarian point of view on something. Yep. So um, equity split between co-founders. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it something that should be equal? Yeah, I'm, I'm a big proponent of it not being equal. And the reason for that is um, there needs to be a clear leader. You know, you know, if you're going to start a company, it is going to be somebody's baby more than more than, more than the other people. And the reason for that is either they have technical knowledge or they have market knowledge or they've been working on it. Um, and that needs to be reflected in the equity split, um, mainly because there's it, it, a hierarchy needs to be established. You can't have, uh, you can't have 50-50 split. I, I just think that's, yeah, it's gonna, that's gonna lead to trouble. It could be as simple as 49 and 51, <laughs> but it needs to be unequal. Um, and you know, that's, that's something that I advise a lot of entrepreneurs is, um, you have to have those hard discussions because not every founder is going to contribute the same to the success of the company. It's just not going to happen. And so that needs to be uh, decided upon upfront and those numbers need to be agreed to and everyone needs to basically say, look, I've agreed to these numbers and I'm never going to bring it up again. Mm-hmm. And you obviously you practice what you preach. Like there was a different dynamic between each company you and Sunny created. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Agamatrix was uh, more my baby than Sunny's, and Misfit was definitely more Sunny's baby than mine. And the fact is, you know, that's the only way that we can work together because there's no way that that 
that you know either of us would say yeah it's a 50 50 split it's it's always going to be somebody's baby more than the others and and you gotta you have to call it out you have to be okay with that now how about setting up a board like what what advice would you give the founders when they're just kind of starting out it's time to build a board like like how do you start thinking about that yeah it's funny um I, I would tell people like you're you know whatever you start with you know the founders can all be on the board but eventually you're going to lose control of the board in terms of voting power i mean maybe if you can structure you know voting shares one way or another but for, for the for the majority of startups um if you're controlling the company pre-investment you're not going to be controlling it you know certainly not after series b but maybe not even after series a and to that extent um what i would say is get get like-minded people on the board and you know i, I, would, I would joke and say like you know don't you know Put, put founders on the board. I, I, I just, I'm a big, big believer in, in, um, in founders uh, controlling the company because they're the ones, you know, it's, it's their livelihood. And from an investor standpoint, yes, it, you know, they're putting their cash in, but at the end of the day, you know, investors will have multiple um, companies that they invest in, but a founder only has one company that they're dedicating their life to. So it's in the founder's best interest to make sure that they retain control for as long as they can. Now, that doesn't mean to be totalitarian and, and anything like, you know, a company can do so well if you have the right investors on board. And, and you know, it's okay to see to give up control. And in fact, you, it'll happen because of the nature of fundraising. But to start off with, you know, I think both, you know, let's assume there's two founders, both founders should be on the board to begin with because they're the ones who understand the ins and outs of the company in the, um, in the early days. Now you've also built companies that, you know, were physical products. So that's capital intensive. Yep. So how do you advise founders on managing cash? Yes. <laughs> uh, number one is, uh, yes, you should manage it. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And, and so um, one of the, one of the big things is um, we, we kind of joke about it. We say, you know, uh, you need to be cheap, but not across the board. We, we kind of joke and say it's you need to be strategically cheap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's another way of saying, you know, penny wise, pound foolish. Um, and, you know, you want to be able to have, uh, you know, the, the money in the bank to hire the best people and hire, hire, you know, build the best teams and all that. But at the end of the day, um, if you make the wrong decision on hardware, it's going to cost you a lot of money because a lot of retooling and all that. And so, for first-time entrepreneurs, what I would say is go work with one of these um, first-time hardware entrepreneurs. Go work with one of these accelerators who will help you do that. You know, there's there's a company like a Bolt, here, Bolt or or a Dragon Innovation that's over mm-hmm. here, uh, and they're great. But if you're kind of a seasoned entrepreneur and you can do it kind of yourself, then I would definitely say bring those skills in house because in the long run it'll be it'll be much better for you, especially firmware. I can't stress the number of times that that companies have suffered because they've outsourced firmware. Firmware is very complicated, much more so than people anticipate when they get out of the gate. So when, I, when you think about hardware, the hardware design, all that, that's fine. You can maybe outsource that, but firmware bring in-house. Um, but be very, very careful on that first few iterations. Make a prototype. Even if it doesn't look good, make a prototype, stick it out there in the, in the market and see if it has traction. And at Elemental, that's what we did. Our first prototypes were, uh, our first hardware was all built on uh, Arduino. So we were literally selling um, sensors stuck onto an Arduino with our software. Um, and so if we hadn't have done that, we wouldn't have been able to narrow down the feature set. Right. Okay. Um, you know, along the lines of, you know, 
conserving cash, obviously you have to raise it first. So how, you know, how should first time founders think about raising capital for their startup? Yeah, it's, um, you have a lot more op- uh, options today than, than you did maybe, you know, even five or 10 years ago. Um, crowdfunding uh, is, is a great way to validate your product. Um, that's one of, you know, if, if I was doing a, a B2C product, I would definitely go and crowdfund it first to see if there's even demand for it. Um, but in terms of raising capital, um, you know, it's the barriers to making a product are so low that you don't need a lot. So you can't, you know, you, even if it's hardware, you can prototype these with 3D printers and, and, and whatnot. You can, you can do, there's a couple of companies like um, you know, Tempo Automation out on the West Coast. They'll turn around, you know, small order PCBs um, you know, very quickly. So you can prototype these very, very quickly. Well, what that means is, A, you don't need to raise a lot of capital. B, you shouldn't raise a lot of capital until you know you have a good product market fit. And so what I would tell people is go build as much of it as you can yourself um, and make some prototypes. You know, you're going to have to you know, go to your friends and family, raise 100K or something like that, and go make something that people want. And sh- if you can get one paying customer, you can get two. If you can get two, you can get four. Mm-hmm. And you know, as that grows, you can then show traction. You can go raise based on that. But don't go out there and raise on a concept when it's so easy to make a prototype, even a physical prototype. Got it. Okay. Uh, you know, you think about so many different things, you know, your background building different t- types of companies. So what's, what areas of technology do you find fascinating these days? Um, I'll tell you one thing. Um, I'm really excited about synthetic biology um, mm-hmm. because uh, I really do see that as the future of material science. Um, and, you know, it's, it's actually, it's funny. Synthetic biology is not really all that new. Um, if you think about it, insulin is a product of synthetic biology that's been made for decades. Um, and it's just, uh, just for, for those in the, in, in the audience that uh, may not be familiar with it, synthetic biology is nothing more than um, using cells to create molecules. So in the world of biopharma, there's two main categories. There's small molecules and large molecules. And really what it comes down to is um, Things you can make in a beaker are small molecules like aspirin or Tylenol. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, these, these are chemicals you can mix into a beaker and you can make it. Large molecules are generally proteins like insulin. You know, insulin or, or hemoglobin, you can't make these in a beaker. You have, they have to be produced biologically because mm-hmm. they're, they're large, they're proteins. And so, but guess what? Cells are great at, at making these things. So what you do is you take the DNA sequence that encodes for a particular protein, put that DNA sequence into either a yeast or a bacterial cell and have the cell have those cells actually produce that product so the cells become factories and why i think this is great is um, with the right proteins and with the right dna sequences you can actually make a lot of very complicated products like you can make the precursors to what the petro you know what what, what the um biofuels industry needs you know you you, you can make um combustible uh, molecules through synthetic biology. You can actually make uh, new materials. You can make even, um, uh, like there's a whole area of, um, I think that the, the, it's called cellular agriculture, where you can make milk without cows. You can make eggs without chickens. You know, one hand it's all plant-derived, but there's another way of doing it where you can actually take the DNA for milk proteins, stick them into yeast, grow them up and express them. And that's a, there's a company called Perfect Day uh, that's doing exactly that. Um, and so 
with synthetic biology, basically you're using um, yeast and bacteria as factories to make complex molecules that we'd, we couldn't make in a synthetic form. We'd have to you know, grow it in the ground, for example. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to reduce the cost of manufacture. It's going to make sure that we can feed the 10 billion people that are going to be on this planet in the next 30 years. Um, it's the only way for us to, to create a sustainable environment. So I'm super excited about uh, this whole new field. It's so cool. It's so fascinating what's going on right now. Is, is this the same like Ginkgo Bioworks? Are yep, they- exactly. Yes, absolutely. Ginkgo is the powerhouse locally here in Boston. Uh, that's, that's doing all that. Yep. Absolutely. So, uh, so what, what's, uh, what do you like to do outside of work? <laughs> um, yeah, I suppose if I say sleep, that's not a good answer. <laughs> um, no, so, uh, so it's funny. Uh, um, a couple of years ago, I started uh, doing long distance running. And, you know, we're, we're looking at each other through, uh, through, through Zoom right now. So it may not look like I'm a long distance runner, but <laughs> a couple of half marathons. And I'll tell you one of the most wonderful things about about that is it gives you so much time or it gives me so much time just to be by myself and think mm-hmm. like I used to actually run with my headphones um so with listening to music I, I, I scrapped that I either run without headphones or or I listen to an audiobook mm-hmm. um but but I don't listen to music anymore because it's time for me to think it's I'm alone it's it's wonderful I, I just kind of zone out so I love long distance running except not so much in the winter time <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'll give it a couple of more weeks um and also, in a in a previous life, I, I used to be a, uh, a heavy metal uh, rock and roll drummer. You uh, were? I, I was back when I actually had hair. <laughs> what? See, this I love this podcast because I always discover these little nuts and crannies. So, what? Yeah. Like, what? Did you have your own music, or were you doing covers? Oh, we we, we had our own music. Uh, I was. We we're doing some covers. We used to cover. Uh, have you heard of a band called Primus? Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We used to cover Primus. My name is Mud. Um, exactly. Yep, that was one of the ones that we covered. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tommy the Cat and uh, <laughs> a couple of others. I'm a big fan of a band called Rush as well. So the drummer oh, for Rush. Yeah, I love Rush. Mm-hmm. Yep, Neil Peart. Um, so I grew up playing drums. Um, my mother was a musician, actually, from India. Um, and so um, she encouraged me to, uh, to, to do music. Um, and I've always found that there's a really good overlap uh, between uh, math and music. Um, it kind of, uh, kind of fits in. So I used to play in bands. I lived out of a van for two weeks in college when we were touring, uh, with my college band back, uh, in the deep South. Uh, well, lots of funny stories. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, that could be a whole different podcast episode. That is, sure. that is, but, um, <laughs> yeah. And, and like the funny thing was I was, I was a clean cut college kid. You know, my, my bandmates were, were not. Um, and I, I was actually refused entry for my own gig once. Because they didn't believe I was in the band, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I play drums. I know I, I have it. In my, in, in, Still play? In, yeah, on occasion, not as much as I'd like to. Um, yeah. but, you know, it's set up in the basement, and uh, uh, it's it's a good stress reliever at times. Well, I'm going to go through the archives of our podcast, and like we could put together the most extraordinary founder band. <laughs> uh, like Paul English played like I mean there's so many founders that have uh, you know grown up playing instruments and it was part of you know like you said it, the math and mm. music kind of play off of each other yeah absolutely one so of my that'll favorite be, that, that, that'll be the next next podcast right you get all the, get the founder band together <laughs> yeah yeah one of my found, one of my favorite stories is um, David Friend far, you know founder of Carbonite and he's doing Wasabi now he's founded six companies that have all exited 
but he, in his early career, he created uh, a synthesizer that actually created the legendary sound of the Who's Bob O'Reilly. So that sound that is iconic was started by a company in Boston. I mean, the the instrument, you know, the synthesizer was created in Boston that created that iconic sound. And, um, you know, like he knows like Jimmy Page and like just all these people that used his technology. So it's just fascinating. (laughs) Anyway. Fantastic. Well, Sridhar, thanks so much for taking the time to share all the amazing companies that you've built and, of course, what you're up to now and obviously uh, looking forward to seeing what's ahead for Elemental Machines. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.